This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. If you neglect smallness, you don't leverage smallness, you don't disciple smallness, you don't have movement. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to the Church Lobby Podcast, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest for this episode is Dan White Jr. He's the co-author with J.R. Woodward of The Church as Movement, Starting and Sustaining Missional Incarnational Communities. He's also the founder of the beautiful Caneo Center on the island of Puerto Rico. In this conversation, Dan and I talk about why we need a complete rethinking of how we do church, that we need to change from the current popular ways of seeing it as an institution or as a series of programs to seeing it as the movement Jesus intended it to be. And specifically, Dan builds the case for a new type of leadership that he calls polycentric leadership. It may be a new term for you. It was a new term for me, but I think you're going to appreciate what he means by it. To get there, we're going to talk through four primary elements. First, the church's movement. Secondly, the importance of church structure. Thirdly, the four stages of learning. And fourth, rethinking leadership and mutual submission. These ideas are grounded in the discipleship that was modeled by Jesus, by Paul, and by the early church. Don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, Dan, it is good to have you on the podcast today. Good to be here, Carl. Thank you. Now, this is an audio podcast, so the people who are listening don't get the opportunity of seeing the beautiful scenery that's behind you. But I've seen it before because Shelly and I had a chance to visit you where you live on the yes. beautiful island of Puerto Rico on the uh, eastern shore yeah. of Puerto Rico. And you're there. Why? What? Where do you live and what goes on around you on, in, where, where you live in there in Puerto Rico? Well, a lot of people think I live in perpetual vacation here, but <laughs> I actually am doing uh, hopefully some serious, important work here. Um, we're in Naguabo, which is the East Coast, about an hour outside San Juan. And my wife and I and a team of people started the Caneo Center, which comes from the word kenosis, if you're familiar with that word in the scriptures in Philippians chapter 2. And the Caneo Center hosts ministry leaders and social workers for a week long, sometimes a little longer than that, sometimes a little shorter than that, exploring and unpacking their particular weariness and woundedness. So at this point, actually, we have four leaders here, but We'll have anywhere between four to 12 leaders working through that. So we have a particular program and sessions and practices and homework. Um, but all of it is the goal is all about renewal, is finding a sense yeah. of healing and renewal. We Most of our work is with active uh, leaders, not people who have transitioned out. Sometimes we get that. But most of the people here are in ministry leadership and sense I'm exhausted, um, I'm beat up. But I feel called and I want to know how to recover. And so that's what we do. So we've had, we, we're all, only been open for about 14 months, I think. And we've had a little over 100 leaders in that short period of time. So that's the work that we're doing here. Yeah, no, the need is huge. Uh, the, the place is beautiful. Um, mm. and I know the work that you do is really important. Well, yeah, I mean, we purchased a old rundown mini resort two years ago and and renovated it and it situates in the rainforest. And so the scenery and the, and you were here, Carl, the beauty is probably 50% of the healing and tranquility yeah. that you experience when you're here. So 
Yeah, it really, it really is. Cause when we were there, there, you know, I mean, like you say, you're just months out of it being a complete rundown place, but there's no sense of it having been run down. There are a couple small ruins here and there sure. where you can kind of see what it used to look like, but boy, the, yeah. it, it is a gorgeous spot. And I really encourage those who need it. We'll be putting some information about the Caneo center, obviously in the show notes that you can follow up, but that's not the reason for the conversation today. Maybe right. we'll come back and have you on again later for that. But today, what I want to do, I wanted to have you on because I recently had the chance to to read a book that you co-wrote with J.R. Woodward called The Church's Movement, Starting and mm. Sustaining Missional Incarnational Communities. Uh, you mm. wrote the book specifically for church planters, but it isn't just for those who are planning right. churches. It's really a workbook for making disciples. I want to talk about it uh, because it is one of the main questions that I get from small church pastors is about what are some good ways to start working towards making discipleship a more central part of the ministry we do as small church pastors. This is an actual workbook, like it's two yeah. columns per page, it's illustrations like crazy, it's follow-up stuff, it's yeah. it's not something you read and then put away, but it's something you really yeah. do use and work through. Uh, but yes. you do call it the church as movement. So you say that mm. the key to reigniting the church as movement is discipleship. Why is discipleship so central, so important? Why why is there an important mm-hmm. re-understanding of and recentering on discipleship in the church today? Why is it so important? Good question. Well, a lot of it comes just from the observance of the ministry of Jesus that Jesus started with a discipleship core. And that was the engine for the movement that would propagate after his departure. And if you don't pay attention to that particular move, that particular way that Christ came and started something, I think you're missing the power of the church. He could have come a different way. He could have come in landed in a Roman Colosseum and announced his arrival to the masses. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different methods for starting something. And he started small. And I don't think that's an accident. We often call Jesus the first church planter. And there is, you know, there is a particular philosophy out there of church planting that is, you know, accumulate resources and launch big. I think Jesus in many ways did the opposite. (laughs) So I don't think he's adverse to something becoming big or for something to become fruitful. But Jesus started with 12 and practiced a very intentional approach to discipleship, which is he taught them how to understand the God information. Um, He immersed them in practices. So he didn't just talk about mission. He took them on mission. And then there was space for introspection and interpretation. The disciples had a window into, Jesus, why did you do that? Why did that happen? Why did you not say that? Um, How did you feel about going into a party with sinners? There was that that piece as well. So discipleship, JR and I see this, and I, I think many others do as well. So we're not new voices to this. But the movemental quality of the church is lost when that mechanism of discipleship is not central to the church. When it becomes peripheral or is something that you relegate to a program once a week, I truly believe you're you're losing that, uh, that quality of movement. And so that's why in many ways when Jesus left, he was able to say, go and do likewise, because they experienced discipleship, which is the engine it's like taking the engine out of the car you know you can't expect the car to continue moving forward when you take the engine out so that work especially in that book there but my work over the last 12 to 13 years is helping people church plants but as well as established churches replace discipleship in very not just ethereal not just kind of sentimentally but like practically putting discipleship back in the center of how you are the church with others. Yeah. Yeah. I love the approach that you have to churches movement. Cause like you said, Jesus could have established church as several other things. He could have established churches, institution churches program, which of course we love to, <laughs> mm-hmm. we love to do, but he, intentionally establish the church as a movement. And if it's going yes. to be a movement and not primarily an institution or programs, therefore discipleship, that is the building yes. up of people in their discipleship of Jesus becomes the primary thing, which of course is what Jesus called us to do. He didn't call yes. us to 
make an institution, to develop programs. He called us to make disciples. It is about a movement of people. That is right. the entire point of what Jesus called us to do, right? Totally. Yes. Right yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. And and just a caveat, I always feel like I have to say this, is that I'm not, and I don't think Christianity should be adverse to structures and organizing. So when we say Jesus didn't start an institution, that's true. You know, there's structure to discipleship. There's organizing yep. to how to be the church. Um, exactly. Institutionalism is when polity and policy and politics and hierarchy become the the highest value over movement. And so that's that's where like I like to create a little bit of a contrast. Yeah, I agree. It's about prioritization. It's not about getting yes. rid of anything particularly, but the institution has to be there to serve the movement and to serve the it. discipleship and not the other way around. You got it. Yeah. Now, the book we're talking about here, The Church's Movement, it, it has four key sections, but it is so packed that as I was looking at it, even when I'm preparing for this, I was like, how am I going to do this in a in an hour-long conversation? And I realized, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to limit this interview to setting the table for this by uh, just talking through the foundational first section of the book. And okay. as I read it, I see that you take four key elements and you bring them together into something that you call polycentric leadership. And mm. it's it's a word that is probably unfamiliar to my listeners and quite frankly, might trigger some of them into going, oh, you're going to go into some weird place. Relax, folks. We'll get there in a way that you're going to see as a real biblical approach. But in order to get there, uh, you really walk through four mm. uh, what are really key areas. And so here's what I, here's how I'd like to structure the conversation. We're going to take a look at church structure. Then we're going to take a look at this. Uh, well, first of all, we're going to take a look at the church's movement, what that means, then church yeah. structure, then the stages of learning. You walk through that, that I think is really important. And then the whole leadership mm. submission thing, which Oh boy, yeah. if we're going to get into any kind of controversy, that one's going to cause it. But but I think you take a really biblical approach to all of these, and that then comes together into this idea of polycentric leadership. So in order to yes. get to this important place, I'd like to take a look at these uh, bits and pieces. Well, the first of the four is the church as movement. It, when you talk about that, you say several things, you already mentioned it, but you say several things in the book about church size that really reflect my feelings about this so yes. much. I'm going to actually read a little bit of it because I loved it so much. In our current culture, we mock and are unimpressed with the small. We'd rather have fast, furious, fantastic growth, but we must pay attention to the small if we want to recover yes. our movemental beginnings. The power of movement is in the power of God's spirit blowing on the smallest embers. Why yeah. is it that small is not just one way of doing church, but in fact, is the foundation for everything yeah. we do if we're going to see the church's movement. Yeah, that's a good quote. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so this this going back to Jesus is that uh, small isn't just a, from my perspective, is not just an inconsequential part of the ministry of Christ. I actually think it's core to the DNA of the kingdom of God. There's a mustard seed value in smallness. And if you neglect smallness, you don't leverage smallness, you don't disciple smallness, you don't have movement, and you don't have multiplication. And so one of the pieces that has helped me over the years uh, is Robert Dunbar's work in the four spaces of belonging. And Joseph Meyer has also done some work on the four spaces of belonging. But I see the four spaces of belonging in the ministry of Jesus. And the four spaces of belonging are intimacy, intimate space, personal space, social space, and public space. Okay. And there's, there's kind of numerical sizes to those spaces. But for the short of it, the church in a, really in the last few hundred years has drifted towards valuing over all those other spaces, public space. And public space is about visibility. Uh, when you get into public space, only one or two people can talk at a time. You have to engineer the room for for observance rather than interaction. And this is where you have just a high, high emphasis on what happens in a large Sunday gathering. And and this this is even outside the church. I mean we you can see that the value for public space shows up in, in Hollywood, it shows up in conferences, it shows up in 
even the way that uh, academia is structured for quite a while. What we see in the ministry of Jesus is that he really places a lot of emphasis on personal space and social space. And those are the spaces of multiplication. Those are the spaces, personal spaces between five to eight people and social spaces anywhere between 12 to 20, 25 people. And in those spaces, you equip and you, you mobilize people. And I think in many ways, the church has lost a sense of the power of those spaces and actually centering those spaces in their church. I know there's a lot of, you know, talk of small group ministry, and I understand that. I don't know if small group ministry has actually leveraged that for mission and mobilization, more for community and belonging. Um, and then when you get into so- social space, which is mid-sized communities, uh, groups of, you know, this is the, in the early church, you read these as household gatherings. And I don't mean particularly house. I mean, household meant uh, a social construct of people who were gathering together for the sake of mission, for the sake of extending the kingdom of God. I think we've really lost that. In many ways, that is a value. Um, we'd rather yeah. see people come into public space rather than into social space. All of this being said, the, the engine for movement is recovering, refreshing, and placing a lot of training and equipping into personal and social space. Those spaces multiply. It's really, really, really hard to multiply public space. I know some right. people have done it, but you really need a magnetic communicator. Uh, you need an amazing band. You need a lot more resources and a, a building big enough to multiply public space. I don't see that as the, the engine for movement in, in especially the first three centuries of the church. There was a minimalism to movement that was there that we've gotten away from. And ultimately, that's what smallness is. It's, it's embracing the resources and the people power of what happens in the small. There's a whole new bunch of traits and skills that you have to learn to really know how to equip small. I think this seminary education, as well as a lot of the heroes that we mimic, are good in public space. And so we've drifted towards public space because that's what we, that's who we're imitating. That's what's been postured as success. But I think it's drifted us away from movement. Yeah. And I'm not saying any, I'm not saying any of this, Carl, as like theoretical. This is stuff that I've lived into. As you move outside of Western Christianity, you see this is the primary way that Christianity outside the West has structured itself, primarily because yeah. of a lack of resources and a lack of uh, high profile leaders. They're forced into what we call like a, a movemental minimalism. They, they have to find a way. Anyhow, that's, I, I think yeah. that's, my answer to the movement question. All four of those types of spaces have their values and all four of them have their challenges. But if you're talking about a people movement and a people movement is guided by the Holy Spirit, when when you're talking about public space, you can build larger crowds, but it's, and you can even have what we call mob mentality where it feels like a movement, but in fact, it's not. When you take a look at the history of the church for the last 2000 years, when the church has truly been a movement primarily and not an institution primarily, it has, it has been not because of the public spaces, but because of these smaller spaces. Exactly. uh, Multiplying uh, as it goes out. Yes. Yeah, that's where that totally. happens. So the church, so that's that's the church's movement. So we've let let's set that one down as the first brick in <laughs> yes. the structure we're building. Now the second one is that the church structure really matters. On page fifty six, yes. you actually there you actually have this straight up statement quote structure is not neutral close quote, which is really different from what we're often talking about. Where well, what we believe matters, but the method is neutral. And right. what you're saying is the structure itself isn't neutral. The structure changes how we perceive even our theology and our understanding, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that is a shift. You know, I, I, did, I kind of grew up where it's the message that never changes, but the methods change. And we saw methods as neutral. You know, I've come to understand that the methods are actually have a deep message in them and they are shaping mm-hmm. us and forming yeah. us. 
for certain goals and certain ways of being. And when you talk about movement, the first place we actually look is our theology of movement, which, you know, we're not going to do that. We have to look at the entire narrative of scripture and how movement, I don't mean movement just as growth, but I mean movement as the equipping and sending and releasing of the people of God as priests in the world. And, you know, we talk can talk about the priesthood of believers, but that's, that's what movement is. And then the second is the structure of movement. If we don't deal with our structure and start inspecting the way that we're set up, we will undercut movement without knowing it. So yeah. right now, when I do kind of do coaching or consulting with an existing established church and they're passionate about movement, I start asking questions around their structure. So, you know, where are you employing most of your people? For what space? You know, most of the time, 70% of your financing is going towards the maintaining of public space and what happens on that public space day. And so, and so that obviously is going to shape what success looks like and what uh, it means to belong and what it means to contribute. You know, when you're, you're equipping volunteers primarily, you know, I, I, I'm sensitive to like volunteer culture. I, get, I understand the passion for that. But oftentimes you find that volunteer culture is how do we get as many volunteers for the sustaining of this public space? It's right. no wonder that people have very little space for mission in their seven days a week. Or it's no wonder their gifts aren't cultivated for the sustaining and launching of mid-sized communities. So we have to inspect our structure and we have to have different metrics. So I like to use this illustration. When you're looking at weight, specifically for me, I could use, use to lose about 15 pounds. So I'm just being honest there. Um, right. You know, I can I can get on a scale and look at that and say, oh, man, and measure myself based upon I need to lose 15 pounds. I'm 200 pounds. I, I, should, I need to get down to 185. And I think that that tells me everything about whether I'm healthy or not. That's one way to measure movement. Am I losing 15 pounds? And I get on the scale every day. Or I can start looking at a Fitbit. And, you know, I can start looking at my blood pressure. I can start looking at um, my steps. I can start looking at my sugar intake. I can have a more holistic approach about measuring my health rather mm -hmm. than just do I weigh too much. That's a different, that's a shift in structure. And many churches value their fruitfulness based upon the weights, the, the scale. Do we yeah. have 200 people coming? Do we have 100 people coming? Do we have are, are more people volunteering or less people volunteering? I don't think that is a healthy metric. A better metric for structure and movement is how many people are being discipled. Right. How many people know their neighbors? How yep. many people are stepping into their gifting? We shift towards measuring that which tells us whether we're moving towards movement or not. That's why, I, you know, we said structure, you know, is not neutral. It actually is shaping us. So I don't know if that helped a bit. Yeah, with, it, with, well, it does, because how we're structured guides what we're going to measure exactly. and what we're going to pay attention to. Yes. And if, if the structure is built uh, uh, institutionally, uh, you actually yeah. use three different types of uh, structures that you lay out. You've got the hierarchical, the flat, and the polycentric, depending on which one you use. And most of us fall backwards into one of those. It's just the way we were raised doing church. And we don't even consider yeah. that there might be another structure around which we can uh, yeah. work. And I think it, it gets closer to the root of what's actually going on in a congregation. When we pause and we say, why do we physically set up the room like this? Why do, why does our calendar yes. look like this? Why do the resources and finances of the church go towards these things and not those things? And when right. we start asking those serious questions, quite frankly, it. I think for a lot of churches, it's just more work than we want to deal with because we're already overwhelmed. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is that is a reality. I mean, there's there is an exhaustion. And I face this often when I when I kind of posit this idea of shifting towards movement, the, the first reaction is, oh. I'm already overwhelmed. And, and so there's, I, I'm sensitive to that. I understand, you know, that there is, we're doing too much right now already. And so 
a shift that's extensive like this does feel like adding another yeah. cinder block on someone's back. Ultimately, Carl, I, I actually think it spreads the weight. I actually yes. do think that it creates more margin. You know, we're talking about more of the, the long view rather than the short view. I, no, I, fu I fully agree. It, it, at first, it's really hard because you're yes. not just uh, adjusting things, but you're having to rethink everything. Yeah. So it, all, all the stuff that goes like the back brain learning all of a sudden has to become front brain learning. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The simple, the simple physical exhaustion of having to consciously think through even the basic stuff about how I'm going to conduct church is yeah. actually physically exhausting to us, which actually leads to the third mm. piece of building this foundation, which is the stages of learning. You, you walk us through uh, four stages of learning, and I'm going to go through them really quickly. And Great. then I'm going to give you my take on how I see and hear them. Because if you just hear these words and you've never heard the structure before, we're just, it feels like another cinder block on the load. Like you said, totally. we move from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence, to conscious competence, to unconscious competence. If you just heard all of that and you're about to turn, you're about to switch to another podcast, hang in there. We'll walk you through this. Basically what it moves from unconscious competence is I don't even know what I don't know. Yes. And then conscious incompetence is, okay, I know what I don't know. Here's the areas that I'm ignorant in. So I've become aware of my yes. incompetence at least. So that's better than being unaware of my incompetence. Yes. Then I move from conscious competence. That is, okay, I know what to do, but I have to really think hard about it. And this yes. is where it starts getting really exhausting for people, right? But yes. if you go through that difficult stage of conscious competence where I know what to do, but I have to think hard about it. Then we get to unconscious competence where I'm doing highly skilled things without conscious thought because it becomes part of muscle memory. I think about it in, in driving a car, for instance, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Where, where you start with unconscious incompetence, you look at it and go, oh, I can drive. I've seen people drive. And then you get behind the wheel and it becomes conscious incompetence. You realize, oh, I really don't know how to do this. This is actually right. harder than I thought. And then, yeah. oh, okay, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. But I got to think really hard about every hard single about move. And then you get to the point where I drive back and forth from work and I'm thinking about other stuff as I do it. Right. That's good. <laughs> because it's such yeah. an automatic thing to do. That's those, those are the stages we want to work through. So how does this apply now as we're trying yeah. to change our structures? Some of us are in the stage of, okay, we can change our structures if we want to, but I don't see any need to. Maybe they have heard this conversation and they're going, oh, that sounds really hard. I don't know if I can do that. How do we then start moving towards, yes, it's worth the hassle of learning how to do something mm. new. And yes, it will be difficult at first. But once you get through that, you can actually get to the point where you've got a, a new structure that is not just simply fairly automatically happening, but in fact is relieving yes. your load substantially. Yes, yes. Great. I, that I'm going to steal that, um, Carl. <laughs> that, that car illustration is a perfect metaphor for that process. It's good. so good. So I'll credit you. So again, here, I just want to make sure that this, these four moves are situated in the right context. This is right. all about how discipleship works and then how it leads towards polycentric leadership, how it leads yeah. towards a shared and released leadership dynamic there we go right you need to know how to get there because carl if you if someone hears this and it's like okay i want shared leadership i want to i want dispersed decentralized leadership and you just try to institute that you will have chaos if you just try yeah. to like pick the people you think are most qualified and create a flat structure you will have chaos i mean i've seen it quite a few times you actually need a pathway you need you need to mark out um, a path even a timeline of moving people towards unconscious competence. So these four moves of unconscious incompetence, when you look at your movement intelligence and your movement competency, and what I mean by that is you're, you, can, you can look at your church and say, oh my, we, we don't even know what it means to be a movement. We don't know how mm -hmm. to live in the movement. We don't do discipleship well. I mean, we might have a couple of Bible studies and a couple of small groups, but like we don't know how to raise up missionaries who live on mission for the sake of the kingdom of God and who know how to disciple others to do the same. We just don't have that mechanism. 
You right. might say we have, you know, for a long time we've lived in unconscious incompetence. We don't know there's another way to do it. So you have to, you first have to acknowledge that the best place to do that is in the small. It's not a great place to do that through a sermon series in the public space. You know, a lot of times when I'm coaching pastors, their first knee-jerk reaction is, oh, I got to preach this. I got to tell people that, that we have a problem. That, that's actually, you can create more damage that way. And they actually think you can inoculate people from practice when you do it that way. We don't need a megaphone. You need to move back to the small. And the best place to start acknowledging your unconscious incompetence, your history or lack of movement is with a small team, whether that's your elders, uh, whether that's your staff team, whether that's you and just a couple other people who are leading the church. You need to first audit where you have had unconscious incompetence. The book has you know, some of those metrics in it. Um, I, I, I'm putting a lot of emphasis here, Carl, because we're so trained to try to fix a problem by going big yeah. that it undercuts us in ways that we're not aware of. Then we move to conscious incompetence. And when we name with in a small space those things that we want to become competent in, competent in but we're not. And I'm just going to name what they are. The, the four things that yeah. a church that wants to move towards movement has to become competent in boundary crossing mission. You have to name, we want to cross boundaries on mission. We just don't want to be attracting people that are just like us. Um, we don't want to just try to be scarfing up people from other churches who are disaffected from their churches. We want to become competent as a community in crossing boundaries for the sake of mission. Uh, the other one is life-forming discipleship. That's the second. We want to have discipleship mechanisms that shape us, not just by being around our church, but actually a concrete pathway that forms people in discipleship and raises them up towards leading others in discipleship. We need a life-forming yeah. discipleship. The other one is tight-knit community. A lot of churches do this well, but what does shared life, how do we make people competent in shared life? I don't just mean attendance at events, but I actually mean their lives overlap. And then the fourth one would be locally rooted presence. And that is where are we competent in being present to the beauty and brokenness of a neighborhood, not just to a people group or to a ethereal, the lost or people that need to come to church, but actually a concrete place. And so those four things are key to movement, right? Boundary crossing mission, life forming discipleship, tight knit community and locally rooted presence. So once we yep. name, we have been incompetent in those, but now we're conscious that we have to become equipped. We have to train. We have to develop. We have to have language. Then you say, okay, we want to take some people on a journey towards that. This is where I think that if you have a small church, you actually have an upper hand on this. Yeah, I agree. Large churches struggle with this a lot. When I do coaching for large churches and they're looking at a thousand people, they go, oh my, how am I going to move a thousand people? Yeah, I mean, as, as overwhelming as it may feel right now to a small church pastor who's listening, now yes. imagine adding a zero or two to the size of your congregation. <laughs> yes. How complicated does that become? Yeah, yeah. So anecdotal evidence here, Carl, the churches that I see having more fruit and more, more traction in this are churches, small churches who start doing this. Oh yeah. It's be, it's really it's really because I I think there's something sacred about the way Jesus did it. Again, I think there's power in small. And so when you're trying to move a Titanic versus trying to move a rowboat, it's much easier. So yeah. Anyhow, yeah. We, we so the the conscious competence is is now taking a small group of people and training them in what to be competent in. This is all a pipeline towards polycentric leadership. So right. Yeah, and, and just wanted to bring it back to that. That's where we're, you're taking people is yeah. How, do, yeah. how do we create a chorus, a multi-voiced, polycentric leadership team? It all starts with discipleship. You don't just give people titles. You don't just give people, you know, you were a pastor at a previous church or you've been a great elder. It's actually training together to be competent together in particular skills, a particular way of being. That's what qualifies people for polycentric leadership. I'll yeah. just give you a quick story. We had some in my church, um, in one of my churches, but 12 years ago, you know, we practiced this as a way of be 
becoming a leader. And I had a, I had a pastor from a previous church who started attending our church and immediately he thought, Oh, I'm going to, I should be a leader here. Um, you know, I've got 20 years of being a pastor. Of course he's, he thinks he's qualified. And I remember having a cup of coffee with him and saying, well, in our environment, you, you actually have to walk this pathway of becoming competent in mission, community, neighborhood, and, and, and discipleship before you, you know, I remember his frustration, like, well, you know, these people with, with no seminary degree are, are moving ahead of me. And I feel that's, that's how you become, this is how you become competent here. It's not competence in titles or status or seminary degrees. It's title in competencies, how to live this way. And so he ended up leaving our church quite quickly when he realized he couldn't take the escalator. He had to take uh, the steps. So yeah, eventually what happens is you create a pool of unconscious competent people who just know how to live. They know what mission feels like. They know what being present in their neighborhood feels like. They know the mechanisms of sharing life with other people. They know how to disciple other people. And it just, it, it infects your culture. And so polycentric yeah. leadership is creating, you know, for me in my experience in J.R. Woodward, who wrote the book, his, his church multiplied a few times more than mine did, but he, you know, they would have, they had 12 to 15 mutual leaders living in leadership together and there really was no head there was no hierarchy it was decentralized leaders who had qualified based upon this structure now that probably sounds quite scary to some people because you're like who gets to make who gets to make the decisions who gets to make the final call but what i want to clarify is that the reason that that can function and be healthy is because of the pathway and pilgrimage that people have to go on to even get there so by the yeah. time they get there, they have been vetted, they have been shaped, they have, you have lived in to these conflicting, you know, these dynamics together. Um, someone doesn't get to just skip that process and take a detour. So that helps a little bit of the context of like, you know, is it anarchy and who gets to make the call? So Yeah, well, that, that's why the stages of learning, I think, is so important to this and why I yeah. wanted to talk about it with you. Because if you just try to drop polycentric leadership into the typical church, you're just going to cause a disaster. Yes. It will not work. And maybe you've tried it and you've gone, well, it doesn't work. And so, you know, why would I even bother? And and usually it's because often when I'm teaching about this, I'll talk about, you know, the, the Ephesians 4, the instruction to, to pastors to the fivefold ministry isn't to do the ministry for the people, but to equip God's people for works of yes. service. And then people, so some people come back to, uh, to me with that by saying, well, I tried delegating and it doesn't work. And my response is, well, of course it didn't work. You can't delegate to people you haven't equipped. It doesn't say it. delegate. It says equip them. Yes. But what we do is we try to just delegate a polycentric leadership into the place and it doesn't work. And then we go, well, polycentric leadership doesn't work. And that's not the case. Just dropping it in at, without the equipping doesn't work. But when you equip them through this process, then you create a new culture. And then that culture of yes. uncom- unconscious competence with discipleship and creating new disciples and, yes. and, and churches movement that then draws people in who it want does. to be a part of that kind of community. And then it becomes it. self-perpetuating. That's exactly it. Yeah. Get, getting there at first is hard, but once you're there, oh my goodness, it's a wonderful place to live. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Eisinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah. What's in between the lines there, Carl, is that equipping takes time and patience in where I think many of us are trained for quick efficiency. That's why people just want to drop polycentric leadership in or just kind of drop cut and pasted discipleship program in and have it working within a few months. To equip people, you have to have patience, the long view, and that's where you, know, you, that's where you have fruitfulness and you, your culture changes. But yeah. I, I just find a lot of leaders who I have coached that at some point within a few months, their immediacy and impatience rises up because it's not moving fast enough. It's slow. And we have, we have a little bit of a, an aversion to slow. We actually see it as a negative rather than as a positive. And again, this is the power of a small church. I think that you are afforded to value the power of slow. Slow mm-hmm. gives you dis- space for discernment. It gives people space to opt out. Um, which is part of the process. What happens is when people are being trained and developed and equipped in this way, you're not fast tracking them into leadership. It gives them space to realize this is not a fit for me. I don't like this. And it gives you space to say, gosh, there's just too many character defects here. Um, You're not, you're not ready for this. But when we fast track people into leadership or we just give them titles based upon their degrees, you're skipping a discernment process. You're skipping carefulness, thoughtfulness, attentiveness. I mean, that's that equipping requires that. Well, speaking of leadership, that gets us then to the fourth element of this, which is the the leadership submission dynamic. And this is going to be another one of those real kind of controversial things for some folks. So hang in there as we walk through this. Uh, Mm. A couple quotes from the book. In our modern narrative, the leader is a hero. But Mm. later on in the New Testament, the word leader is generally avoided. The New Testament writers use the term diakonia, meaning servant or service, to identify people in leadership. We have elevated leadership in our church culture in the last generation to a point of near worship and maybe at times actual worship. Mm. (laughs) And we have looked at servanthood as, and about the only time now we're comfortable with using servanthood is if we attach the word leader to the end of it, it's got to be a servant leader. It can't just simply be a servant. So why is this why is this more than just a change of terminology uh, happening yeah. now? And why is it so important? Yeah, language creates culture. So the words that we pick shape what we what are shape our ambitions and they shape ultimately what we worship. And so leadership has taken on whole in, there's a whole industrial complex around leadership and becoming that kind of leader. The problem with that is that we have fashioned one prototype looking leader, and that leader is a great communicator. That leader is a great galvanizer. That leader is multi-gifted and multi-talented and can hold people's attention. I know that some people wouldn't say that overtly, but I, I do think that that is the image of leadership. In my early days, I've been you know 50 to 60 leadership conferences. And every leader that was put on stage was a prototype of the same cut. And I looked at myself and thought, does that mean I got to become a master communicator? Does that mean that I have to, I I felt like I had to imitate that leadership paradigm. The problem is, is that most people aren't cut that way. And that's not the way most people are, the gifting that God gives them. That's why fivefold leadership is so important is actually it's saying that we need multiple types of servants at the table. We need multiple shapes and forms and voices in order for the church to be equipped for movement. When you have one type of leader, you're actually built for the end means of institution, not for movement. And then you have the, you have the problem of imitation, which is, is a problem and it's a possibility. People imitate what they see. 
And I, I, I mean, I, I said this, my first book, Subterranean, I mean, for the first eight years of my ministry, I imitated my heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk like them. I wanted their success. I eventually had a crash and realized I can't beat them. Um, and I can't right. do it as well as they do it. And I had to put on a false self to be that. And so what we actually want to work towards is understanding that polycentric leadership in mutual submission is actually submitting to the diversity of the ways that God has wired us. You really can't talk about this without getting into fivefold, apostle, prophet, shepherd, teacher, and evangelist. You, you just, Ephesians is really giving us it's giving us the governance as well as the framework for how to lead together. Yeah, it is. It is a huge thing that I have really yeah. uh, rediscovered and, and doubled back on so much in my teaching recently as well. Yeah. You know, where, where it's lived, I don't think it's lived, has lived well, but at least where it's existed has actually been in the black church. Um, you know, I, I served in uh, an urban, urban area for, for 10 years and uh, you know, most of my, colleagues and pastor friends were, were, were black and were in the black church. And they had the language of apostle, prophet, teacher, you know, shepherd and evangelist. And so you see the remnants of it there. But I think in many ways, there's still, it was still lived with in hierarchy. And I've talked, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I've you know, talked and, and critiqued that within uh, in that church is that the apostle was the top and then everybody else, you know, kind of flowed down from there. I think oh, okay. that Ephesians 4 is is actually that there is, I don't think apostles the boss and everybody answers to the apostle. I don't think that that is the way that it's given to us. Um, I actually think these are gifts given to us that live in tension with one another Yeah. that create a holistic way of leading. So, so for example, I'm a prophet shepherd. What that means is that I, the prophet in me is naturally seeing the gaps and the holes of where there's injustice, where there's brokenness, where there needs to be correction. But I do it with a shepherding impulse. So I, I do it with a tenderness and a care and a carefulness. I'm not just a prophet who wants to burn down the empire, right? I'm, I'm, right. I, I do it with a prophetic shepherding posture. And so every church that I've been in, that's the way that I've led. I try to create prophetic environments. I try to create shepherding environments. And I I attract people who want to learn how to use their prophetic voice and I equip people on how to be shepherds. Here's the problem. If I only, if that's the way that I led my church and there was no other space for apostles at the table and there's no other space for teachers at the table and there's no other space for evangelists at the table, that church would imitate just my personality. Yeah. And other people in the church would say, I guess there's no space for evangelists and apostles here. They're like, you know, they would see themselves as like secondary gifts. Right. So to move towards polycentric leadership, you actually have to, I call them schools. You have to create schools for apostle, for prophets, for shepherds, for teachers and evangelists to help equip them in maturity, to help them know how to use their gifts. And then ultimately with those learning for learning moves, eventually they can sit at the table and we can actually live in submission to one another. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah. I'll tell you what this has looked like in my past leadership. So, in my last elder team, we did this thing called the five hats. We put on each other's hats. So, when we had a decision to make, we would ask, "Let's put the apostles in the room." And apostles are really passionate about entrepreneurship. They're they're passionate about strategy and growth and taking new territories. And you know that's what lights them up. And so I don't think that way. That's not my passion. I care about shepherding people. I care about problems. But we would in a meeting say, okay, everybody, let's put on the apostle hat. Um, And the apostles in the room, how do you see this decision? How do you, what's your angle on this? What are the things that you're concerned about? What What are the things that you think need to be considered? And we would do that with all five hats. Okay, the prophets in the room, what do you see? Well, I see... If we make this decision, it's going to hurt people. We're going to steamroll over people. You know, the apostles aren't thinking that way. They're just thinking about expansion. They don't care about who they hurt. <laughs> they care <Right>. about <laughs> taking the next territory. You know, so we would we would actually walk through every meeting and put on each other's hats. And in, in many ways, mutually submit to each other's perspective. Now, we cultivated a culture of seeing submission 
not as a negative, but actually it was actually our power to actually see each other, see things from each other's perspective um, and then submit to each other's perspectives. And so it does slow again, back to slow. It slows down decision-making because when there's at first, (laughs) right. Because if, listen, if let's be honest, if you're the only, if the buck stops with you and you can just make the ultimate decision to make and pull out the Trump card every time, you can make decisions super quick, right. but you're not bringing in the whole, you're not bringing in the fivefold gifting. I'm saying all this because in the, in the early stages, it feels slow. It feels clunk. It can feel clunky, but in the and long it, And in the early stages, it, yeah. in the early stages, it will be slow and it will be exactly. clunky. It just doesn't, doesn't just yeah. feel that way. It actually is. It is. Yeah. Right on. But it's eventually, true. as you were saying, yeah. Yes. What happened for me over time is that I, I was able to move when I moved from like a pastor centric world to a more polycentric structured way, I actually had less work to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, I didn't carry the weight as much and I able was able to defer to others over time. And that helped um, the, the entire church was led by, we end up having seven people in polycentric leadership. And, and that was from a church plant, you know, from ground, ground zero all the way till, you know, year 13 when I departed, you know, it was, a, it was a journey to get there. But established churches, you know, you're often working with existing leaders and you're trying to grow them towards competency in order to live into polycentric leadership. So it's a, it's a bit of a different starting point, but yeah. it's not anarchy. It's not chaos. I think it's quite saturated in scripture. It's biblical. I think that's why, here's the thing. I think that's why the apostle Paul was able to, everywhere he traveled, he was able to leave leaders behind. Yeah, exactly. As he, tra- he traveled with a band, right? He traveled Always. with, yeah. And actually when you do more s- historical work, we realize the band is even bigger than what we're seeing in scripture. There was actually a lot of people on the road with Paul yeah, uh, and he's leaving these people behind in existing church plants and in new starting church plants, and it's because he's building polycentric leadership along the way. Yeah. And he was following Christ's pattern when he was doing that. So that's totally. what what you're what we're talking about here is restructuring our thought patterns to really match what Jesus did, what Paul did, what the early church yes. did uh, yes. as we do this. So just as a quick summary before we get to the lightning round on this because there's so much in oh. this what we as as we're trying to get to church as movement rather than church as the primary focus yes. rather than church as an institution or program being the primary focus so we we got to yeah. first start thinking that secondly we've got to assess our structures because structure is yes. neutral is our, are our structures enhancing our ability to get toward church's movement or hindering our ability to get toward church's movement yeah and then we've got to realize that in order to start doing that we're going to have to move through some painful stages of learning where it's going to be harder at first than what it's been. And the way I look at the stages of learning is pastoring is going to be hard either it's either going to be hard towards something good. It's you going to be it. hard towards something bad. Either way, it's going to be hard. So let's hard, pick the hard yeah. towards something good. And then mm. we've got to take a look at it and we've got to disabuse ourselves of the idea that somehow we've got to have a an all-powerful human leader on the stage yes. in order for yeah. this to happen because that simply isn't the biblical model. Yeah, uh, and that it's and we're going to have to walk through these difficult stages of learning to get to that point of what the Bible talks about this mutual submission. Yeah, and, and then when we get there, we can have a whether you want to call it polycentric leadership or team leadership, sure, or, or whatever. Yep. It doesn't matter the term, but that there is, the, and and it's laid laid out there in Ephesians in the APEST acronym: the Apostles, the Prophets, Evangelists, Shepherd, Pastors, and Teachers. Yes. There's not one person who's called to do those five things. There are right. multiple people who have each of those gifts, but the getting there, we have to start with these pieces in order to put them yes. in place. Ton of all of this. I know at this point for a lot of listeners, it may seem very overwhelming. That's because uh, you're at one of yeah. those first two stages of lear- learning. Yes. You've gone from not even knowing what you don't now to now knowing what you don't know, and it can feel overwhelming. But there mm. are paths to get there. There are biblical yes. spiritual paths to get there. Yes. And I really do encourage, if you're interested in this, to pick up the book, The Church as Movement, uh, written by Dan and by J.R. Mm. Woodward. 
and get started there. It'll take some work to get through. It yeah. is not an easy read, but there's some really great stuff that will lay out a roadmap for you. Yeah. That was a brilliant, that was a brilliant summary, Carl. Well, that was, well, that was great. Yeah. Thank you very much. That, that, that's, that's why I'm here. Tip your waiters on the way out. <laughs> let's, let's take a look at the lightning round before we wrap up with you today. Uh, first of all, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? Mm, I think the biggest change is that there is a increase of burnout and ex existential deep exhaustion that ministry leaders are feeling and actually experiencing i don't i don't think it's i don't think it's just you know a figment of their imagination i no, no I, it's real it's real and um i think there's some reasons for that i think there are cultural factors that are colliding all at this moment i think there's more pressure and expectation for the pastor to save us and to do it i think there are more polarizing factors where a pastor doesn't feel like they can win and I also think that there's less time to do the interior emotionally healthy work in order for them to be resilient. So I think all these things are coming together and our ecclesiology has elevated that the pastor, everything hovers and orbits around their aptitude and their ability to sustain. So the adaptation, yeah. you know, the second part of your question is the shifting is really is rethinking our ecclesiology. The system is bad for leaders. It's borderline un, unlivable. The second piece is, you know, we talked about this quick and with Canal is really helping leaders to move just beyond blame and, and frustration and anger around what they're experiencing in their church and actually to go inward and start helping them understand how to become whole, healed, how to find equilibrium with who they are, who they are not. And so that's been, a, I think that that's an increasing yeah. discipleship work for pastors. I, you know, there are, Peter Scazzaro has been doing that for years and he, pro, yeah. he I think he introduced that into the, into the popular church in a, in a great way. But I think there's more people saying pastors need discipleship. They're doing all of the output. There's been very little formation for their own soul while they're in, you know, while they're in the game. So yeah, I, I think no, those I agree. are the two big pieces. And for those who have been in ministry a long time, uh, as long as I have for longer, there are, I, I know every once in a while I hear some pushback from pastors on that. Well, you know, back in the day, we didn't have to have pastoral coaches. We didn't have to have retreats. Well, back in the day, you'd also didn't have this, the cell phone yeah. at, where people could access you 24-7. Yeah. And yeah. There was, there, it was a slower pace, and the recovery yes. time was built into the rhythms of life. The recovery time has now been removed from the rhythms of our life, and we have to do it intentionally now. You got That's it. That's yeah. what the, I think is happening. The, con the conditions are very have accelerated and are very different than they were yeah. just 10. I mean, when I started, I mean, it's night and day. Yeah. The expectations, the conditions are different. Uh, yeah, it's so a big difference. We, have, we, need a, we need a different type of formation to be able to sustain. So. Yeah, absolutely. That, number two, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? Yeah, I'll, I'll plug, I'll plug our, our website, churchesmovement.com. Yep. And that's a free, it's loaded with tools and worksheets. And I mean, it's just, that's all it was built for. It's actually not a, a website to sell a book. It's, it's actually got seven different like outlets for downloading worksheets and assessments all related to these movemental shifts. So that'd yeah. be one I would, I would look at. Yeah. A great way to dig deeper into what we've uh, started talking yeah. about in this, in this episode. Absolutely. A uh, third, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Yeah. My mentor, he's passed now, but one of the, one of the big things he said to me that we revisited many times, but he said it to me once in a, in a kind of a manifesto way. He said, Dan, what you want to accomplish in a day probably probably will be accomplished in a week and what mm. you want to accomplish in a week will probably be accomplished in a month and what you want to do in a month will probably take a year and what you want to do in a year will probably take three to five years now that's a yeah. bit metaphorical he's talking but he was helping me grasp that the good work 
good faithfulness takes much longer than you're expecting and and what you what you are what kind of time you're giving yourself and so that kind of patient slowness which we talked about earlier i had to start to internalize slowness i had to start to take in that I can, I can be more methodical. I can actually tell people, I can create resistance to moving at a pace that I don't think is actually giving me space for discernment and wisdom and carefulness. So that little slogan he gave me years yeah. ago is, is like lives in me now. So No, I, I have found that to be absolutely true. I, a, a very similar saying to that is uh, you, we tend to underestimate what we can do. Yes. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in five years. Yeah. Love it. So the, 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 the hopeful part of that is that if you do keep at it over long periods of time, massive changes can really take place. If you stay consistent in the faithful things over the short periods of time, you string yes. those small pieces together and big stuff can happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Fully agree with that. And the last one is this. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? <laughs> well, this was, this is weird. I had one Sunday, I had someone who, I, I think they just loved my sermon. We were talking after and they were like, pastor's sermon was so good. And, and I just happened to make a comment. I said, oh man, I love your shirt, man. That's a great shirt. And he took it off. <laughs> gave it to me. <laughs> and was standing at the front of the church shirtless and uh, wow and and his wife was standing there and going what honey <laughs> what? <laughs> and so i i was caught in a situation where like do i reject this gift cuz wow. you know it was a weird it was a it was a weird moment and he didn't feel awkward at all oh my but, goodness uh, never I compliment that, don't ever compliment that yeah. man's pants yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So anyhow, that's that amazing. Was, well, that's, that was a, that well, was a that's fun I, I, I guess, I guess that his wife was shocked is a better reaction than, Oh no, not again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. Okay. Hey, again, for all of the stuff for, uh, for Dan, for, from Caneo center to both of his books, uh, will mm. be there. Uh, will be in our uh, show notes. We want to make sure you do that. But uh, as a reminder, we've been talking about stuff from his book, The Church's Movement, Starting and Sustaining Missional Incarnational Communities. I really recommend it for those who are really thinking seriously about the big shift items that mm-hmm. we've been talking about here, because this is not you know, a shift of methodology or a tiny little yeah. change in the way you do your service order. This is a total rethinking back to yeah. a more biblical pattern about how church should be done. It's hard yes. to get there, but once you get there, the payoff is so, yes. so worth it. Um, yeah. If people do want to find you and get more from you uh, other than your website, which you mentioned earlier, how can people find you online? Uh, yeah, Dan White Jr. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dan White Jr. My website is danwhitejr.com. And if you're, you're, you want to explore, you know, my work here in Caneo, uh, the caneocenter.com. Terrific. Thanks, Thank you so Carl. much for your time today and all that information. Yeah. Appreciate it very much, Dan. Thanks. Loved it. It was great. Thank you. So does your head hurt yet? Yeah, if not, you may not have been paying attention. These are seismic shifts that Dan is talking about, and they can feel overwhelming at first, but I think when we pause and really think them through, they are really grounded in New Testament biblical theology. So here are four key takeaways for me. First, as Dan kept coming back to, these kinds of shifts, as challenging as they are, are actually much easier to pull off in smaller groups and in smaller church than in larger ones. So small church pastors, that's good news for us. Secondly, as he mentioned, as we talked about the four kinds of spaces that we all tend to inhabit, the smaller, more intimate arenas are much more likely to allow for the kind of biblical church-as-movement approaches that we need. Thirdly, he talked about the importance of knowing and walking purposefully through the stages of learning until these necessary changes become second nature to us. These stages of learning, I think, are really essential and really important for us to understand and for us to approach consciously. And then fourth, we got finally to that point of how polycentric leadership, even if it's a new term for us, is really grounded in New Testament principles. They need to be rediscovered and they need to be re-implemented or, in a lot of our congregations, implemented for the first time. 
If you'd like to support this ministry with a one-time gift or monthly donation and help put these resources into the hands of ministries that need them the most, check out our support link in the show notes. Would you like a transcript of this episode? It will be available within a few days of the podcast air date at christianitytoday.com slash carlvaders. You can find the link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver, edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.